0: Your smiles, your welcoming gift of friendship uh, to us, to others, is one of the things that we cherish. We're so grateful for each of you. I give thanks regularly for this, but don't acknowledge it as much as I should, and that is the gift of Justin and Ruth and Becky and Jonathan and Josiah as they serve and minister unto the Lord deeply grateful for the ministry of worship. I I think I think today in the culture of our of congregational life, not just here, but across the country, we really need to recapture a phrase from the book of Acts, chapter 13, where worship is described as ministering unto the Lord. It's ministering unto the Lord. And uh, too often in we know there are human reasons for this, but we, we can get caught up in which kind of music and which kind of setting and the circumstances and the peripherals. But really at the heart of it, we're called, we are called to minister unto the Lord. Well, I'd like to ask you to read a passage with me in the Old Testament. It is in page 868 in, um, in the, um, it's 850 Six, excuse me. <laughs> it's eight fifty-six. I do have some reading glasses, by the way, but I, I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to get beyond. I'm not accepting my fuzziness yet as much as I should. I turn sixty-five in a few weeks. I guess it's inevitable. I've got the Medicare mail in my box and all that stuff. So, um, Isaiah sixty-one. Uh, I'd like you to read with me, being on page eight fifty-six into eight fifty-seven, and we're going to read. Um, We're going to read four verses. These are vital and expressive of um, the Messiah's impact on the nations. And the accent, obviously, in the beginning verses is the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And let us read together gratefully Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4. Let's read aloud together today. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, and they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Then I'd like you to zip down in the text to verse 10 and uh, read about the reason that this promise has fresh application to all of us and can impact us in a fresh way when we do what the first words say, and that is to greatly rejoice This describes the individual believer being clothed with a righteousness that is not our own so that all those promises from verses 1 to 4 can be activated in our lives. It is verse 10 of Isaiah 61. Read it aloud with me if you would. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Can we pray, Heavenly Father, today we join our hearts in agreement that in this season, for every individual here, for this congregation, for its calling and its ministry, for the way that you define our task in discipleship, we pray. Guidance and grace. We pray an awakening to the magnetic power of the Holy Spirit. May we know anew in this day what it means to fully rejoice in the redemptive promise that we read here, to rejoice in the redemptive power of the person of Jesus, to know in this hour, in our setting in our circumstances, in our culture, what it means to truly enter and receive and respond to the Holy Spirit's immediate, dynamic, gracious, glorious presence in Jesus' name. And then we pray today that after children are ministered to and we receive your word, we would go out with a fresh sense of being ignited for mission. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we're going to have uh, Pathfinders and Explorers classes. Some of the best teachers you could ever ask for, and uh, we're so grateful for each of you. Truly, truly, thank you for all that you do. Thank you. You may be seated. <laughs> thank you so much. Possibly, oh, and we we love the fact that. Um, These boys and girls are in a place where what we cherish, the word of God, can be planted as living seeds. And as this school year starts again, we want to continue in the stream of what what we began two weeks ago as we prayed for teachers and students all here together. Let's remember through this coming week, uh, teachers, what a challenge for Ruth and Everybody going back into the classroom for each of you and the unique challenges that you face, getting boys and girls ready for each aspect of their schooling homeschooling, private academies, public schooling that God would give you grace in every arena where you serve. Probably the most significant gift that made an impact on my life as a young believer was the understanding that Christ could light a fire in me that I could never, ever have even begun to think about on my own. In my own experience, when I first came to realize what it means to truly follow the Lord Jesus with my whole heart, it came on the heels of a discovery that I still value very highly, and that was that I realized how bankrupt I was. And I, for some reason, and I credit the grace of God to this, it became very vivid and real to me at the age of 14. I'd been, I'll never forget the setting. I'd gone with a group to Expo 72 in Dallas, Texas, where uh, great concerts and ministry was taking place. But the focus of Expo 72, boy, that was a long time ago. (laughs) But the focus of Expo 72 was... Was young people uh, hearing the gospel and uh, in in uh, great with great music and, and great ministry, and in that process, I, I remember a gnawing sense of frustration. Uh, at that age, that I knew I had made many attempts since I knew for sure that I'd accepted Christ at the age of ten, but I'd made many attempts to 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 push on toward what it means to really follow Jesus, and I just had a distinct sense of failure. There's various reasons for it, and that distinct sense of failure stayed with me for over another year, and then in an encounter with the Lord through a vessel he chose, it became very real to me that that God alone could light the fire in me. Now, I want to take that personal story and apply it to what I want to ask you to look at in your Bible if you'd open to uh, the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke today, and begin today um, a three-part series that I pray can, both, can do three things for us and be focusing on these three aspects of it in these three weeks, and that is to shape the vision of Liberty Church, to sharpen the vision, and to shine in the mission that God has given us. And the reason is that Luke chapter four gives us a kind of a template, and I see it really, beginning at uh, verse 13, uh, all the way to the end of this chapter, a template for how individuals and congregations can discover this meaning of the igniting of the flame of the grace and anointing of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this is why I see, particularly, verses 16 through 20, the heart of Luke 4, as as a template, the Spirit-empowered action that God gives every church and every born-again child of God the opportunity to be involved in. Now, I cannot stress enough today, and it's a good day in a time when um, we all see the condition of our country and the challenges that make us feel as if almost that the body of Christ is torn asunder in many ways in conflict and sharply divided viewpoints on many hot topics. Um, In this environment, and in the environment of the challenges that churches face today, to be faithful to the gospel in a time where the cultural storm of, of divisive and corrupting, tru- corrupting influences is stronger than ever before. And we've, talked, we've touched on some of those things, the assault on childhood innocence and some of the other things that we've talked about. So today, what I, I'd love to be able to do is to, to, do it, to walk with you in a journey of shaping the vision of this church with the template of verses 18 and 19 of Luke 4 in mind. And as you turn to those passages, you see, uh, I want to read the the heart of it first, and then we're going to go back a little bit to uh, an earlier part. You see that in verse 16 of, of Luke chapter 4, that the Lord Jesus has come back to the home church, Might say the home synagogue where he was raised. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to the Lord Jesus. And in that scroll, the Lord reads from the section that we read. A few moments ago, and in this setting, we hear the words of Isaiah the prophet with a completely new twist, a new application that is absolutely stunning to the people who are present. I begin reading in verse 16 from the New King James Version. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book, really the scroll in those days, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him the 21st verse the 21st verse shows us how the messiah in his present tense application of this text not only brought the truth to that synagogue audience but the words of verse 21 are applicable to us today because it is animated and activated by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at that 21st verse. And he began to say to them today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now we might say, "My what in what way was this scripture fulfilled?" We we read earlier about the re, the restoration about I will give them the oil of joy for mourning. I'll give them the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Each of these parts of Isaiah 61 and the Lord Jesus bringing the fulfillment have a ready and powerful application to the child of God today. And The reason I got to thinking back about my experience uh, 50 years ago was that what I came to realize is that the great discovery of the beginning of a spirit filled life is just as true today as it's ever been, but sometimes these truths have to come with fresh application to our lives. And that is the simple fact that even after having walked with Christ, loved the Lord, studied the Word of God, grown with other believers, walked through, as the great hymn Amazing Grace says, many trials, dangers, and snares, but the grace of God carrying you, even then, one of the greatest discoveries we can make individually, as a church, as a follower of Christ, and as mission teams, is this. In myself, I can do nothing. My human capacity, no matter how spiritually mature we may be, spiritually experienced, In my human capacity, I'm incapable of of any kind of production of that which actually results in people experiencing the power of God in their lives. What is it that I need? Well, I want to suggest in in this sense of what Jesus presents at the synagogue of Nazareth that what we need is igniting, and that igniting can be pictured by the standard type of oil vessel that was common in the days of the Lord Jesus. And, of course, we would recognize it immediately when we think of certain parables, like the parable in Matthew 25 of the, of the ten virgins, the five wise and the five foolish virgins. And we remember the story that, uh, that, that in the wedding customs of that time, there was an elaborate, sort of intentional, romantic dance that went on leading up to the, to the celebration and the festivities of the wedding day. And a part of that romantic dance was that, uh, th- that the virgin attendants to the bride had various duties that they would do over a period of a of, um, number of days. And the general time frame was set for the wedding, and yet there was an intentional ambiguity in the exact timing of when the bridegroom would come out of his chamber and call for his bride. It was part of that delightful, effervescent sense of the liveliness of creation that was a part of the Jewish culture. It's a beautiful thing, even hard to convey sometimes in our Western way of thinking. But that, that, that dynamic dance that went on uh, engendered a, a, an ambiguity, a, a space of time in which the, the, the virgin attendants to the bride didn't know exactly when the wedding was actually going to start. It was all based on that timing and that, uh, that beautiful dynamic. And so Jesus takes that, that factor of, of, of Jewish wedding experience and he uses it to talk about um, the, the virgin attendants who were so. Ready. They were looking for that moment when the bridegroom would come, but others, because sometimes there could be a longer than expected delay, began to get a little bit uh, lackadaisical about it. And the part that they were missing, the foolish virgins, was not keeping their wicks prepared. Not, not having their wicks, little uh, wick sections that would dip down into the oil had to be kept trimmed and clean so that when it came time to light the wick and it would draw from the oil, a clean and carefully prepared wick would mean that immediately they could carry those lamps. Now Jesus, not only in the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins, drew from that lamp imagery to speak of of, of a, of a capacity of the heart by which the Bible tells us in a number of different places that our human body, our human being, our human experience, we are compared in the Bible to an earthen vessel. Probably the most vivid uh, description of that would be 2 Corinthians 4.7. What a wonderful way to see this too. 2 Corinthians 4.7, we have this treasure, the treasure of the Glory of God, described in that prior chapter as the Holy Spirit's immediate developing within the heart of a love for God. And the text says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Modern translations use the text, explain it as jars of clay, pottery, if you will. And and that fits. Exactly the discovery I made 50 years ago, when it became real to me, this vessel of mine, this person of, uh, that I am, no matter how much I may yearn for my heart to be right with God, he's got to light a flame. David said it this way in Psalm 18, verse 30. He said, the Lord, my God, will light my candle. God will enlighten my darkness psalm 18 30 and 31 and then I come to this and here's where I think Jesus Jesus is aiming and I want to ask you to read this text aloud with me from Luke 12 35 because Jesus is verbalizing in a very concise way what I hope we can share and, and explore about the spirit of the lord being upon us In Luke 4, read aloud with me the way Jesus described it here in Luke 12, 35. Would you read it with me? Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Say it again with me. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, now there is a dynamic interaction, clearly then, between the fact that the earthen vessel... Those ancient lamps, those beautiful little vessels that fill with oil and then you put the wick in to get the light, can surely symbolize your life and mine. Our abilities, our talents, our capacities, even the totality of our experience in walking with God. You and I bring our experiences to this church, don't we? We, all of us, bring something to liberty. All of us come here and find ourselves bringing, importing, if you will, um, where what God has done in our lives at different points in time. One of the things that I love about the adventure of congregational life is that the potential is there. Doesn't always happen, I'll admit, but the potential is there for individuals, of vastly different, vastly different, both ethnic, racial. Um, experiential, denominational, um, cultural, and even national experiences to, to, to find a place where because of the victorious sacrifice of Christ our Savior, at the place of worship, the body of Christ meets with an awareness of vast differences among them, and yet the mighty power of the Holy Spirit that enables a chorus of worship to come from hearts because each one is an earthen vessel made of clay in which God's oil of the Holy Spirit has been placed and the flame that he promises, the the igniting that only God can do, becomes an interactive relationship. Like the wise virgins, we are called To keep our wicks trimmed, so to speak. To keep our, that part I play, God's igniting, God's flame is that which only he can do. But the part that I can do, I've been given a model in Luke chapter 4 of how the Lord Jesus himself actually walked out this very path. For us and with us. So, with your Bible open in Luke chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to think about this and explore this with an understanding that it is Jesus who calls us here. It is Christ the Lord. And that in his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus has not only done what he said in verse 21 when he told the synagogue congregation, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We're going to get to all that that means here when we look at that, the content of his promise next week. But but first we want to get this view, this understanding here to see that Jesus not only fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah and the amazing components of that prophecy that promise a renewal and a power and a grace to people who are suffering loss, people who have found themselves disoriented, people who have been bound or troubled or anguished in their lives. He'll bring them the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. They'll grow as trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. But even before we get to that, we see it that modeled in the very Steps of Jesus. Go back to the beginning of the fourth chapter of Luke. And, of course, we know this is that moment, that event, that titanic confrontation between the king of glory and the adversary of our souls. And what better way to begin looking together at the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer in the church than to realize that Jesus himself, Jesus himself encountered Satan at the most, at Satan's most blatant and aggressive position. Here the ultimate titanic struggle, the cosmic conflict over the very nature of the mission of the Son of God, and it hinged on Christ declaring three times In these repeated temptations, it is written. Notice in verse 1 that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, a characteristic of this chapter is the dynamic interaction of the Holy Spirit in the life of the messiah as he came to fulfill the mission that isaiah prophesied of and then of course by extension then verses 18 and 19 the heart of that isaiah prophecy is transferred to us it's like the passing of a baton there is a sense in which only jesus can ultimately can ultimately be the font of the Holy Spirit's presence, but he involves us as recipients of the overflow, the dynamic power and gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me clarify that because it's very important to know that John 3.34 says, The Holy Spirit dwelt upon the Messiah without limit. (laughs) But we, being who we are, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible clearly tells us repeatedly, be filled and continually filled and be refilled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 classically tells us that, does it not? And yet Jesus didn't need to be filled and refilled with the Spirit because John three thirty four says that the Spirit of God dwelt upon the Messiah without limit. But the connection between these two is vital for you and me. If we think of ourselves as a vessel, if we think of ourselves as an earthen vessel in which the oil of the Holy Spirit is deposited by God's grace, then we know we need the flame that only comes from Him, but we're not just passive spectators in this this dynamic. Relationship. No, no, we carry in our hearts the responsibility of keeping our wick clean, keeping that, that part of us that we talked about last week and the week before in Psalm 110, the willingness of the worshiper, the, the giving of our heart, the, the freedom of giving unto God from a grateful heart. Now, Jesus models for us that that even for him, the Messiah, that the mission that was so vital had to be ignited by the Holy Spirit. And so we have have four significant declarations about the person of the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 4. The first two you see here in the text that we read, and let's read these from the screen again, these two phrases, full of the Holy Spirit and led by His Spirit. Let's say it again, full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. Now, one of the really powerful takeaways from that, when we see the intense temptation Jesus encountered clearly was that Being tempted by the devil was no anomaly. It was no accident. It was not some weird, crazy, off-the-charts thing like we often can feel when we're facing temptation. Peter explained that dynamic in 1 Peter 4.12 when he said, Don't think it's some strange thing when you encounter fiery trials. Because, why? Because Jesus modeled it for us. And and that entire section from verse 1 through verse 12 of Luke 4 shows that titanic struggle. But then when you come to the 13th verse of Luke 4, you get to an astounding fact. Now, a harmony of the Gospels shows us that the temptation ended, and we see in verse 18, 12, if we go back to verse 12, that Jesus answered, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, the the narrative breaks off here. Gospel of John fills in an astoundingly rich and beautiful area of experiences that occurred when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee after having been to the Jordan River where the first five of the ultimate twelve first began to realize the yearning of their heart to follow him and then Jesus had that nighttime conversation with Nicodemus and talked to the woman at the well and the Bible tells us at the end of John chapter 4 that he's returning to Galilee. And then we come back into this place of verse 14. So approximately six months goes by, roughly in that time frame, from the Passover era, the first Passover of Jesus' Galilean ministry, until the early fall. So let's say it's about this time of year. In verse 14 of Luke 4 says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, this Galilean phase of the earthly ministry of Jesus is where the bulk of Luke's narrative carries us from chapter 4 through chapter 19, and in this in this prominent way in which the Lord manifested the reason for the Spirit of the Lord sending him to bring the good news to the poor, to break the bondages of oppression, to set the captives free, is that God was preparing for this good news of his triumphant conquest over sin, death, hell, and the grave to be a gift to the entire world. World, the global reality of the good news of Jesus becomes demonstrated even in the people that Jesus chose to deal with. Jesus is certainly without with when many different examples in Luke's gospel. An accent is on the um, the real people, the the real interactions, the kind of struggles that all of us encounter on a daily basis and we find ourselves interacting with people with contradictions in their lives, confusion in their lives, disorientation in their lives, dysfunction in families. And there's a there's a kind of a a beautiful awakening that we can get when the flame of God is lit in us that we can honestly say no matter how bad a person's situation looks when you are ignited with this mission of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the Messiah, you can be a vessel by whom the truth of his breaking those chains, healing the brokenhearted, setting the captives free, that can be a part of what you bring to your college classroom, to your transportation, to your workplace to your social media interaction, to your personal connections in your neighborhood. Because the grace of God, the Holy Spirit working in the Messiah, caused the news to spread about him as he taught in these synagogues of Galilee. And the the accent in this text is being glorified by all the um, New English Bible translates it. Everybody was praising him. Another translation says everybody was talking about this. This teacher from Galilee. And in John's gospel, in John chapter 4, as this same time is spoken of, there's a real interesting accent on the fact that the Galileans welcomed him. The Galileans welcomed him. In other words, as the Bible describes, common people liked to be around Jesus. It was, was, not only was it the truth that he spoke, but the person of Christ, his, his immediate presence, the Holy Spirit's anointing that he speaks of in verse 18, was, a, was an, an intangible magnetic fact that caused you to just want to be with him, want to go with him. Jesus interacted with people so comfortably. <laughs> there is no substitute for mingling in the real world with real people. A pro football player named Jerome Bettis many years ago is returning home to Detroit to play in the Super Bowl, and he bought a house for his parents in suburban Detroit. Now with newfound resources, (laughs) Bettis was excited to do something tangible for his mother and dad. And his mother, Jerome's mother, recalled, she said, when Jerome found out we were still going to the laundromat, he said, that was not going to do anymore. That wasn't acceptable. And he told us to go out and get a new washer and dryer. Now, you'd think that would just be wonderful news for her. But she said, I kind of like going to the laundromat because you meet so many interesting people. Well, Jesus doubtless, would have been very comfortable at a laundromat, as well as in the throne of an emperor, or in the courtroom of an emperor, because Jesus conveyed in his person the, the, in, the intrinsic value that God places in every soul. And of course, it's reflected in many examples throughout the Gospel of Luke, but there's a, there's a kind of an irony in this text that we're going to finish up with here today as we Think about this background. Think about these steps that Jesus was taking. And it's an irony that we can probably relate to right here in Carroll County. In fact, right here on these beautiful little remote backroads where we're located here in the beautiful rolling hills of Carroll County. And that is that one of the great failures of human perception is our understandable tendency to gauge the value of interactions by either by carnal comparisons, it might be popularity, it might be wealth, it might be affluence, it might be prestige or position uh, in the political world or in the uh, athletic world or in the music world or the entertainment world, but all of us, all of us instinctively as human beings have a tendency to downplay uh, that which does not seem humanly impressive. Now, there's an irony in the way that John described in John 4.43 and the Luke describes in Luke 4 the, the, the welcoming of the Galileans. The Galilean area uh, was named literally from the Hebrew word uh, galil, meaning the circle or the circuit. A cluster of cities um, north just above the, the, the Jezreel Valley uh, clustered around the Sea of Galilee which to this very day is a thriving, bustling metropolis area. And yet, it got its name, it early on was associated with a less than prestigious, let's say, reputation in uh, royal circles. And there's an almost hilarious example of this in 1 Kings chapter 19, chapter 9. We're not going to turn to it, but the story is that Solomon, when he was building the temple... For God had, had attained great resources, natural resources, from the king of Tyre. Now, Tyre and Sidon is about 160 miles just to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, a good three-hour drive in today's traffic. But it was a place of abundant natural resources from which Solomon had drawn uh, great help in the building of the temple and out of gratitude to his friend, the King of Tyre, Solomon just gifted to him twenty cities in the Galilean, what became called the Galilean area. Well, some investigation went on, and uh, it turned out that uh, fields weren't as fertile, there was a lot of rocky hills, there was a lot of obstacles to agriculture. there were other things that were in, in the view of the King of Tyre, were somewhat deficient to his his standards uh, of of what would make an impressive gift. And with Solomon's great reputation for wisdom, uh, it is puzzling and somewhat hilarious, actually, funny, to hear the answer that the king of Tyre gave to King Solomon about the towns of Galilee. And it's a forerunner of something we see in the Gospels, and that is that the entire region was not held in the highest of esteem by the powers that be of that day. And it is crystallized in the king of Tyre's answer to, the king, to King Solomon when he returned the 20 cities and said, Ah, thanks Solomon, but no thanks. And he said this, the reason he said it was, What good are these cities to me, brother? He even said brother. And because the king of Tyre rejected them, the text tells us in 1 Kings 9.13, so they are called Kabul to this day. And that Hebrew word means sterile or good for nothing. Now, the irony of this to me is almost hilarious. That in the region that a a noted and, and, and much vaunted and much esteemed king in the days of solomon king tyre was was on the par with solomon a great emperor with incredible natural resources we might say a, a an impressive leader but he says this region is good for nothing well you can easily remember what happened in that about that little town of nazareth with the uh, the time that andrew had gone to seek out his um his brother, his friend Nathanael, and, and said, Nathanael, um, the Lord is calling you. And he spoke of Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The ultimate irony is that the initial impression was it's just an empty clay vessel. Even Nathanael, now Jesus commended him. He said, I see Nathanael is, is an Israelite in whom there's no guile. Jesus recognized the candor and the clarity in Nathanael's character and Nathanael became a trusted part of his, uh, of, of his disciples' band. But what it highlights is something that is true about the Messiah it's in the background of all that he spoke of in the Holy Spirit's mission because we find in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 that when he came to Nazareth, where look at the phrase in verse 16, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. It is really striking to realize that here in a region <laughs> that, a, that a, a highly esteemed king said was Kabul, good for nothing, a sterile region of the earth, and who a thousand years later, uh, just an ordinary Israelite named Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The irony is that Almighty God places in Nazareth his promised royal messiah and isaiah said he will grow up he the messiah will grow up before god the father like a like a tender shoot a a, a fragile plant growing up the text says out of dry ground he has no form nor comeliness no outward Characteristics that would cause us to think of him as some great celebrity. Nothing distinguishing about his physical appearance that in and of itself would captivate us. And yet, and yet, Isaiah goes on to say, this is my servant. This upon him will be laid the iniquity of us all. So I want to ask you to look at your Bible at at Luke 4 before we leave today and think about this one section of verse 18 like this. That when Jesus stands and he reads aloud these words, that Jesus himself is bringing to that synagogue a realization that he also brings to you and me today. And it is simply this, that verse 18 tells us, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And remember, he's led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then in Nazareth, he says, as it had always been prophesied, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, read aloud with me verse 18. And I'm reading the ESV. I guess you can't read aloud with me. I'll read it myself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Think of it like this. The very flame... Of the anointing of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was full of. Now, God promises because of Him, only because of Him, only because of Jesus, you and I can say, Light this wick. Light the wick of my willingness. Now, one great way, one great takeaway would be to pray that that wick, that's the tiniest part, and yet God says that's the part you and I can choose about. Would you pray with me? And I want to ask you to think about it like this for a moment. Just as we take a moment to pray, picture yourself like this vessel. Picture yourself as as in this humble way that the Bible describes a lamp, a piece of pottery, a, a common lamp. It's shaped in that familiar, uh, somewhat oblong form that we see commonly used in that time. And in that lamp, God has put oil. And you are here today, and you can say, When I asked the Lord Jesus to reign in my heart, He made me a candidate to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord... I ask, and I would ask you to echo this in just your own quiet way. Oh God, freshly fill me with that oil. Unlike our Lord and Savior, we are called to be filled and refilled and refilled because God has designed us to know our need. And the Holy Spirit's power is unlimited. And that wick is our will, our willingness, as we saw from Psalm 110 last week. And I ask you to think about it like this. And, and maybe today to say in a new way, light my candle. Ignite this wick and show me in these days to come how I can keep my wick ready to be flammable for you.